We're reading from Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Would you stand with me, please? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths to your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. The word of the Lord. As we jump in, let me remind you just of a couple things. First, boys and girls, if you work through your worship guide and are looking for uh, something to draw that's related to the sermon, there's a suggestion for you on the left-hand side of page 10 in your worship guide. Also, you'll notice at the bottom of that page there are also questions uh, for you to consider as a family during your uh, family worship uh, during the week. And if you have something that you're already using, that's great. But if you don't, those questions are intended for you to just take one a day and to think about that as you read the passage that we've considered on Sunday each day and to allow for your family to reflect together and to grow together in the midst of those questions and as we've done it a few times at home, I've thought through some of the questions, and some work and some don't. And I would love your feedback in terms of knowing what doesn't. But you'll note that they've gotten a little bit longer because at times I've phrased the question for a little bit older child, and at times I've phrased the question for a little bit younger child. And that's uh, the difference between those. And then thirdly, starting today and moving forward, we're going to try every sermon at Trinity Harbor Church to have just one aspect of the sermon that's particularly intended for our younger uh, students of the Bible, our younger worshipers. So you can be look at, listening for that, boys and girls, as we make our way through the sermon, where I'm going to try to uh, to talk to you in a particular way. And today I'm going to tell you a big secret about Miss Jennifer. 
So you want to be listening very closely for that. She doesn't even know I'm going to do that, which may mean my, the rest of my day may not go very well, but that's okay. So uh, we're going to jump in. So on Wednesday, uh, I was here late for, um, we had officer training, we had a, a meeting about children's ministry. I was, I was serving the kingdom and sacrificing my life for Jesus. And on the way home, late, because I had been here so long, I got pulled over. Right? Can you imagine? And it wasn't because I was opening up the throttle on my Prius, which I do do sometimes, but I got pulled over and I was like, what? You know, I wasn't going very fast, and um, so I was like, you know, and of course, my wicked heart, right? And this will relate to how we think about God eventually, but what, no one likes to be pulled over. I'm embarrassed, right? Right in front of Chilosos, right, is where we pull in. Everybody's going by, and I'm like, hi, um, Pastor Ryan here, pulled over. So, and of course, what do you think immediately? You're like, someone somewhere is cooking meth. Why are you pulling me over? <laughs> right? immediate defensiveness, like there's real crime going on, but he, it was actually, it even got more funny, because I had no idea, and he pulled me over, and he said, you know, your license plates are, are expired, and I thought, huh, and so, of course, I'm not saying anything loud, but inside my head goes, oh, those were sitting on the counter for a very long time, <laughs> and I'm not sure where they've gotten to, and so he said, well, I'm going to run your registration, and he said, yeah, this sticker doesn't go with this car. And I thought, oh, well, that's, there was a sticker out. And, but apparently when I put the last stickers on at some previous date, I mixed up the cars. And this went to a car that we had actually sold. So somebody in Waco was driving the car that matched my registration sticker. So he was super nice and uh, apparently assumed that I was simply incompetent and had <laughs> neglected all this, which was actually the case. And so he let me go home, but of course, first thing in the morning, I'm like, you know, uh, love, where did those license plates go? And so got the plates on, got the sticker on, and uh, was really glad that I did, because uh, that day I got rear-ended. And I was really glad that I had all the right stuff on the car <laughs> in the midst of that accident. And it was not, it was not a big deal. I was very grateful to be well and minimal damage and not really, not a big deal at all, but... As I'm going through this process of realizing the things that I've neglected, of having to be instructed and trained in uh, being a good citizen, right? I think laws make a good society. Right? Even though I don't necessarily like that, I was really glad for the outcome in having gone through that process. That's something akin to what we're wrestling with today, is going through the process of God's instruction and correction and the fruit and positive things that that yields for us. The author of Hebrews is calling us to endure in the midst of our race. It's today that we're actually concluding our sermon series on that we've entitled The Hero's Story. And all along we've said that Jesus is our one true hero because he ran his race perfectly. But we are called to be heroes. We are called to run our race well and in that way to mimic the examples of faith that are held out to us in Hebrews 11. Last week we noted that the race is set before us by God. The race is not something that you can opt out of. So it is essential as you process what we talk about and think about how you want to run, you have to realize you can't not run. The only question is how are you going to run? 
What's your race going to look like? How much are you going to enjoy the running? That's what we're after this morning because the author of Hebrews continues to unfold what's involved in our race, what is required, and how it can be a true benefit to us. How we can benefit from his instruction in the midst of our races. So first we must wrestle with the nature of discipline. The author of Hebrews begins by urging us to consider Jesus the one who endured such hostility against himself. Right? The reason that Jesus has endured such hostility is in part to, to be obedient to the Father, to be seated at the right hand of God, because he's earned that right by virtue of his willingness to endure and race well. But we've also noted that he's done it for you. Right? What Jesus wins as a result of his wet race is you, is what he did not possess before. And so by looking at him, it is supposed to be an encouragement to us in the midst of our race that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, why would we grow weary and faint-hearted? It's interesting language. It seems to assume that our race is hard. Why does our race have to be hard? I would prefer an easy race. You know those fun runs? where people wear costumes and there are lots of bands along the way and runners stop to drink a beer every mile, that's the race I want to run. That sounds like fun. I'll train for that. Right? But the author of Hebrews is speaking in language that obviously indicates that our race is not that kind of fun run. It's a hard race. It's one that requires a certain degree of endurance, a certain degree of training. Why would this be necessary? There's purpose in that difficulty. Right now, in all the difficulty that you face and in the endurance that is required of you in your race, there is great and significant purpose. And the author begins to raise this in verse 5 when he asks, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here he quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, which states, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What the author is saying, in in the midst of your affliction, people to whom I'm writing, in the midst of your temptation to walk away from God, the reality is that what you are suffering is a display of love. The things that have come upon you are an act of love by a heavenly Father that loves Now, sometimes, very often, actually, we don't often read this correctly, because when we read the word discipline, we think punishment, right? It's kind of a knee-jerk, and boys and girls, in your house, it may be, the word discipline may always mean punishment, right? Discipline may mean that you head for the hills of your house to avoid what's coming. But discipline is actually a much larger word, and it's intended to be taken in a much larger sense here. Discipline can be punishment, but it's also instruction and correction. So, for example, someone, a child in my house might do something wrong, and I proceed to discipline them, by which I mean I'm punishing them. But if I take my children outside to work in the yard, and say, this is important because you need to learn responsibility, and the entitlement that naturally comes to you needs to be undone, that's discipline too. It's not punishment. It is instruction and correction that my children might grow to be competent adults. 
This is the discipline that is being articulated in Hebrews chapter 12. If you read the word discipline, do not think solely punishment, but think everything that may come upon us in a category of instruction or correction from God by which to point us in the right direction. And this this is terribly important because uh, so many of us, there's almost a weird, there's reasons for it, which we don't have time to go into this morning, but many of us operate with what I would call an Old Testament mindset. And that mindset is this. For my righteousness, I will be blessed. For my sin, I will be cursed. And if I am suffering in some capacity, if I am receiving some form of discipline, then I must be sinning. Because discipline always comes as a result of sin. You can make that argument from the Old Testament. You cannot make that argument from the New Testament. And that's what the author of Hebrews 12 is saying. Discipline, instruction, correction from the Lord is an act of His love so that you wouldn't remain what you are, but that you would be made new. Right? Simply because you may be suffering something does not mean that you're being punished. Necessarily. It may be mean that you're being punished. But not, it doesn't have to mean that. And we get at the idea in verse 7. If you look there, the author says it is for discipline that you have to endure. Right? We could just as easily say it is for training that you endure. Because that training makes you something new. And this, our training is a sign of God's love to us. His compassion to us. That He, he wants us to be transformed as sons and daughters. And that transformation can't come apart from His instruction and correction. Recently I was, I was talking to a woman and she was very frustrated. She was suffering physically and emotionally and financially. And she was in this place where she, she said essentially, I can't understand why God would be treating me this way. Right? Who is he? And I, I understand him to be loving, but what I'm experiencing is not loving. But at the same time, in the midst of her frustration, she was also able to say, you know, I do, I am starting to think that my life is all about me. And I think that I really only draw near to Jesus in the sense that He can do something for me. She said, you know, I start to think that I don't really want Jesus. I just want what He can give to me. And I said, that's right. I said, if, if you don't really want Jesus, you only want what Jesus, what you think Jesus can give to you, then there's one of two options. Either, A, you don't know who Jesus is, because if Jesus is who he said he is, then you would want him more than anything else that he could offer. Or B, Jesus isn't cracked up to be who he says he is, and he's not worth it, because he's not delivering on what you want. And she said, yeah, I, I actually don't, don't think I know Jesus very well at all. Right? A woman of, of decades of faith. Right, coming to the point of recognizing that she doesn't really know Jesus and is only related to him for what she believes that she can get from him. Now, do you see the point? This woman sits in a place where she, she has trouble conceiving of how God as Father can, in love, treat her the way that she is experiencing life. She says, I don't, I don't get it. How can God be so harsh toward me? But at the same time, she recognizes 
a, a place where she is not that close to Jesus. She's only been pretending. She's lived in illusion. And in that very process, God draws her near. And that would not have happened without any of the instruction or correction that she's receiving. Right? And so while she, she thinks, that doesn't seem like a father, the love that she's actually receiving is the love that transforms her. It's not the love that she wants or the false kind of love that, that she thinks she desires, but it's a real love that actually transforms. This is the discipline, the instruction, the correction that comes from a loving father. In one sense, the author of Hebrews is saying, really? He's writing to his audience, and he's saying, there's not one of you who, having grown up under decent discipline from an earthly father, isn't grateful as an adult because you realize that you are made who you are by the discipline you've received from your earthly parents. How then can you not be grateful for the discipline you would receive from your heavenly father? It makes you into what he intends for you to be. It yields great and very impressive things. But we don't like discipline, do we? Or instruction or correction. We have a tendency to to avoid it, to run in the other direction, to tell ourselves that we don't need it. Why is that? If it's actually an expression of the Father's love, why would we avoid it? Well, part of the reason the author knows full well is in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Discipline is uncomfortable. And the unhealthier you are, the more discipline you need. And in my experience, the healthier you think you are, the more discipline that you're going to need. Like those to whom the letter of Hebrews is addressed, we have an enormous aversion to discomfort, to pain. That's what's happened for them. The pain has gotten too intense, and so they're looking to leave the faith. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, don't make a foolish decision. Remain faithful and understand what's happening in the process of your suffering. This is his message to them. But we we would so often go, rather go in a different direction at the moment's notice of discipline, of instruction and correction. And boys and girls, you know this all too well. right? When your parents come to you and say, I'd like to train you and instruct you in something. I want you to, to work at something. I want you to change your plans because I have a different story for you today. It's not very often in my house that I hear... Yes, Daddy, your will is good for me. It is honoring to God and pleasing in His sight, and it's honoring to Him that I obey. Let's get started. In fact, I've never heard that. I I wish, maybe someday. Um, Right? So what happens? When we go out to work in the yard, maybe suddenly some of you, like my children, don't feel well. Or uh, when it's bedtime and it's time for the lights to go out, one of my children saves the uh, hardest and deepest question she's thought of all day to ask at that moment. And they're, they're tough. They're not, you know, pretty serious theological questions to start a conversation to delay bedtime. 
And uh, once, uh, when Mrs. Jennifer was going to be spanked for being naughty, she ran to her room and put on all of her underwear. And her daddy didn't realize it, and she didn't suffer a very hard spanking that day because she had quite the buffer on. You children are crafty in seeking to avoid the instruction and correction of your parents, right? And as we all chuckle, though, the point is, we also are crafty and sneaky in avoiding the instruction of our Heavenly Father. And one of the great ironies of life is that the time and energy avoiding God's instruction and discipline is um, so much greater than actually learning from Him. Than actually learning, right? Doesn't it require so much more energy and time to learn through having to be instructed several times than simply learning something well the first time? Why are we so sneaky? Why are we so averse to discipline? Especially when in verse 10 it, it tells us that by virtue of this discipline, this instruction, this correction, we share in God's holiness. And in verse 11, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Who would want, who wants to say logically, yeah, I'm not interested in holiness. Peaceful fruit of righteousness. No, I like the chaos of my own making. Right? We would never say that logically, but our hearts always go in that direction. So why? Well, if we consider children, even for the briefest of moments, why do we have lots to learn? Because we're not much, we haven't grown up that much. And in our relationship to our Heavenly Father, there are a lot of parallels. Why do your children disobey and are adverse to your instruction? Well, first, they don't like the feeling. They want to avoid that, and they endure to prefer, they prefer to seek some relief rather than endure what you're offering to them. Or secondly, they don't believe that you know what you're talking about. Right? Perhaps this comes more as a child grows a little bit. But it's been a long time since you were their age, and the world has changed a lot, and they'll consult you when they need to. They think they know better. Or thirdly, they may know that you're right, but they don't care. Yes, I know my parents speaks wisdom in this instance, but it's not what I want to do. And I'm going to do what I want to do rather than what may be wisdom, because that's where my heart is. And we could easily take all three of those reasons and apply them to ourselves and our relationship uh, from God, our, our relationship to God. See, the only way, and all of this, whenever we take one of these decisions, alienates us from God. It, it increases the distance of our relationship because in any of those decisions, we're saying, God, I don't really trust you. I trust myself more and I would prefer to rely on my judgment rather than yours. And so I'm going to see how it goes with me, and then I may be back if I get myself into trouble. Right? Just like the woman who was waking up and realizing she didn't really know God. She only came when she needed to get herself out of trouble. And so we find ourselves in this place, but the discipline is necessary. It is necessary for us to, to use just the metaphors of Scripture to be woken up, to be reborn, to be made new. Right? That doesn't come just... Um, just at a snap of fingers, you pray the sinner's prayer and suddenly you're reborn. There's so much old self and deadness that has to be cut away. And there's, you're so asleep in such a deep, deep slumber, you need to be woken up. Right? We're sheep, the foolishest of all creatures. 
and need discipline to keep us from being given over to our own foolishness. Well, if we start to believe that, if we start to believe that God's discipline and instruction and His correction is worthwhile, what does that actually mean for us? What should you do in light of actually believing that? Or what will your life look like if you start to actually invest in that? The author of Hebrews has some strong words beginning in verse 12. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. In other words, if you're going to be changed by God's instruction and discipline, if you believe that that will have a good effect, that by it you will participate in His holiness and enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness, then you have to start to actually invest. You have to start to train. All of this, again, is athletic imagery. We're back to the metaphors, the language of racing. When you've been racing a long time and you get tired, your arms start to drop. And your knees become feeble and you wander around and he says, wake up. Gird yourself up. If you're going to be transformed by discipline, that means you have to stand under it just like all the heroes that have been chronicled in chapter 11. What are you going to look like as you come under the discipline of the Lord. Now, all of this seems somewhat abstract, does it not? Yet I was challenged by a great example, uh, the example of Isaiah Austin. Isaiah uh, grew up and had a very early affection for the game of basketball. He fell in love with it, and as long as he can remember, he was both gifted at it, And his one dream was to play for the NBA. And it seemed at one point that that God might be putting uh, Isaiah's dreams on the sidelines when he was blinded in one eye in an accident. And people told him, listen, you, you can still be a good player, but you'll never be a great player. You're going to lack the peripheral vision to see the court adequately so that you can be a top tier player. Isaiah wouldn't take that answer or suggestion, and he trained himself diligently. He worked out all the time and and gave himself fully to basketball and continued to uh, rise through the ranks. He was eventually recruited to Baylor, where he made several trips to March Madness and even to the finals. And as he was graduating from Baylor at seven feet tall, He was uh, expected to go, uh, maybe not at the beginning of the first round, but in the first round of the NBA draft. And so he entered the NBA Combine, and he said it was the best time of his life, playing with all of his friends who were hoping to land in teams, meeting coaches. Mark Cuban picked him up in his DeLorean to take him out to lunch to see if he might be a good fit for the Mavericks. All of his dreams are coming true. Yet in the midst of this, he's going through all the physicals that are required for NBA players to go through before they're selected by a team. And in an early physical, uh, he showed an irregular heartbeat on his EKG. They said, oh, it's probably nothing. And they brought him in for some more testing, but he continued with the combine and didn't think much of it. He was staying in Dallas, which was kind of home base, uh, for a while, while he was considering different teams and hoping to receive a good offer while he was going through the combine. And one night he was meeting up with his family in June of 2014. But he walked, he walked into his aunt's house, who lives in Dallas. Uh, he was surprised because over 20 people had gathered. It was his family, it was his pastor, 
the chaplain of the basketball team, the head coach of Baylor basketball. Uh, all of these people, his agent, had gathered together, and he saw his parents, and he knew something was wrong because his mom had obviously been weeping all day. And they sat him down, and they told him that he had been diagnosed with Marfan syndrome, which, among other things, uh, had created an enlarged aorta in his heart. And he could not play basketball uh, or exert himself fully. In fact, it was, it was somewhat perhaps providential that he had not yet died because at any moment in extreme exertion, his heart could rupture. And his basketball career was over like that. Right? His entire life of dreaming for the NBA, his entire life of working toward that goal, God had made him seven feet tall. He had made him quick. He had given him unbelievable hand-eye coordination. And in a second's time, it was all stripped away. Right? His entire orientation to the world was, was modified. What do you do in that moment? Now, you may have experienced something of that nature. You may have experienced something in smaller degrees. But what do you do in that moment? When God changes your story, and the story goes in a direction that you do not want it to go. Do you run? Do you hide? Do you rebel? Or do you start to come under the instruction and discipline of the Lord in a way that you expect that it will yield holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness? This is what Isaiah writes of that night. Good players had a next play mentality. I had no idea what the next play could be, but I knew that I wanted the ball in my hands as soon as the clock began again. I've had only a handful of times in my life outside of church services and chapels when I really felt God's presence enter a room. Sitting on the stairs at Evelyn's, I knew he was there and that I was not alone as long as these 20-some people who were family to me remained by my side. But there was something else, something that's hard to explain. Even if everyone in that room were to abandon me, I knew God was enough for me to get through whatever I faced beyond that moment. I knew that there was a presence in that room so much bigger than all of us. God's presence that day was not only felt by me, though. Everyone else could feel it as well. What a remarkable statement. What a remarkable experience in God's grace that at the moment of having all of his hopes and dreams stripped away, Isaiah says, God will be enough for me. I have no idea what tomorrow brings. But even if all the people in this room who love me leave me, God is enough for me. That's a man who knows the love of God and who loves God. And is caught up in that relationship to the degree that will sustain him through, really, perchance anything. It's so reflective of the love of Jesus, for the love of the Father that sustains him through the cross. He doesn't run, he doesn't rebel. And Isaiah writes this great line, he says, I knew this would either be my excuse or my story. You get that? What's happened to me will either be my excuse to enable me and give me permission to do whatever I want to do and move away from God, or it will be my story that I embrace and accept from God and live in the midst of. And in that I know God will yield greater fruit. As chapter 12 winds down, or winds down isn't really the right word, but as the author moves on, he changes gears interestingly and starts to talk about the community nature 
of what it is to run our race well and to encourage one another to come under the instruction and discipline of the Lord. If you just gaze down, strive for peace with everyone. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Don't let anyone, don't let the person sitting to your right or the person sitting to your left be like Esau, who in the moment of his affliction was not willing to endure and sold his birthright for a single meal. See how they're saying to the community, you guys have, this is the choice before you. You have affliction, you have discipline and instruction and correction from the Lord, and you have a choice to make. It will be your excuse or your story. If it's your excuse, you're going to move back, you're going to return to Judaism, you're going to deny Jesus as Messiah, and you will have done the equivalent of Esau. You will have sold everything for a single meal. The other option is to embrace the story and in the midst of that to believe that God is working out your holiness and your peace in the midst of your discipline. And in that there is life. And it is a decision that we come to not just individually, but as we uphold one another in it. Isaiah is very frank that he may have had a great experience that night, but he would not have made it if not for the people who were gathered in that room around him. His agent, though he would profit nothing off Isaiah, remained committed to him. He said, I am committed to you, not what I make off you. And I'll see you to the next chapter of your life. Coach Drew from Baylor said, I've renewed your scholarship so that you can finish your degree. You're also invited to be a student coach. His pastors came around him and encouraged him and continued to be in contact with him. And his family walked with him step by step. It was the community that surrounded him that enabled him to run his race well, and so it is for us. The question is before us individually, will your affliction, your instruction, your correction be your excuse or your story? And it is before us as a community. Will it be our excuse or our story? I'm so proud to be part of this church because I know for many of you it's your story. And increasingly may it be so. Because that story yields the fruit of God's holiness, His peaceful righteousness, indeed, what we receive at the table this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy to us. We thank You that You love us so much that You would not let us be remain asleep and remain dead. But instead, You wake us up and You give us life. And that life comes through instruction and correction, and indeed even punishment. Let us be shaped by it and not run or hide. Let us not be foolish children, but wise. And know that through such things, we will receive the holiness that comes from You. And in such things, we will receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness that we might be transformed. God, we thank You that You are so committed to us that You would make us new in this way. Give us strength. Strength to raise our drooping hands. Strength to, to, to establish our weak knees. Strength not to wander, and to be distracted, but to make our path straight. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen.